You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects' Journal. My name is Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects' Journal. In this series, we're discussing landscape and ecology and thinking about how what we build relates to the natural world around us. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, Director of 1.5 Architecture. Too often, landscape, ecology, and biodiversity are treated by architects as an afterthought. I'm seeking to counter that with this landscape series. So far, we've had Guy Shrubsoul on, talking about rewilding and urban greening, and then we spoke to landscape architect Joe Gibbons about trees in urban environments and people's relationship with nature. Today, we are discussing two recent high-profile competitions which have landscape at their heart to delve into how that mindset is shifting. Thamesmead feels like it is the project at the moment. It's going to be addressing so many of the issues that we now know to be fundamental in terms of whether or not people have found the pandemic bearable or have found it virtually unendurable. Something which is around landscape as central to a place. This is where design, you know, really creative design thinking is so important. It lifts the thinking beyond the obvious and into something which is the unexpected. And in many respects, I think that's what the, the Thamesmead master plan did all those years ago in the 60s and 70s. It created somewhere which had something, an element of the extraordinary in it. First up is the £8 billion Thamesmead Waterfront, a joint venture between Peabody, owner of the 100-hectare site, and Lendlease. Selena Mason, Director of Master Planning at Lendlease, and Phil Askew, Director of Landscape and Placemaking at Peabody, share with us their ambitions for the riverfront site which straddles the London boroughs of Greenwich and Bexley. The winning team, led by Prior and Partners, was announced in April. Phil and Selena, we're delighted to have you with us today to discuss this important project, which will transform the last stretch of major undeveloped river frontage in southeast London. What do you see as the headline vision for landscape on this project? I think one of the key things about the waterfront site is it's is it set within Thamesmead, which has one of the most extraordinary and unusual landscapes already within Greater London. When it was originally designed by the GLC in the 60s as a new town for London, it had embedded into it this extraordinary network of parks and green spaces and also canals and lakes, which were a truly visionary part of the thinking of that time around water management in in the landscape. So I think there's a really interesting and strong context already for the design team coming into Thamesmead, which I think is partly why they're so excited around it. So tell me a little bit about what you have done in terms of blue and green. We've got such an unusual estate here. Um, It's very unusual for someone 
particularly a housing association like Peabody, to inherit, if you like, such a large quantum of green and blue space. It's not their normal business. Their normal business is building housing, affordable housing, and all the stuff which we know about Peabody. So we have five lakes, green space to the equivalent of two and a half times the size of the Olympic Park, several kilometres of Thames water frontage, all of which we own and manage. And within that context, what we've done is put together a um, blue and green infrastructure strategy, which we're calling Living in the Landscape. And Living in the Landscape is really saying here in Thamesmead, we've got a quite unique opportunity to say, okay, living in a city, what are the key components or could they be in the future in a place like Thamesmead? And what could make it a better place to live in terms of health and well-being, in terms of managing climate change, in terms of thinking about habitat loss and biodiversity. And living in the landscape really says, well, this is a fantastic opportunity to create a place, a really, truly green and blue environment for people to live in and to, to enjoy, to make their lives in. And I think what's been really encouraging is that when we launched this piece of work late last year with a sort of round table including people like Selena but also London Wildlife Trust and many others people were saying well this could have been written for a post-pandemic world so in other words we've got a, a direction which will take many years to play out which acknowledges I think what so many people have been saying over the last year which is that actually green space blue space these extraordinary assets these natural assets are phenomenally important for people's well-being. But more than that in Thamesmead, we've got two, I think, extraordinary opportunities. One is to really major on habitat and wildness, if you like, and bring that right into people's living environments. And secondly, because Thamesmead is all about water as well, because it was a former marsh before it became part of the arsenal, we've got a real opportunity to build on the extraordinary network which was put in place in the 60s. All of the surface water in Thamesmead, or at least most of it, is transported into lakes and canals and finally into the Thames. So effectively we have a gigantic sustainable urban drainage network already in place. Thinking about the future, thinking about blue and green roofs, thinking about suds as many new developments of course do, we can put all this together in a way which is completely unique. And I think also bring the water cycle much more into people's thinking and attention. As we all know, we pull a plug on a bath and it disappears nicely down a hole and never to be seen again. But of course, um, actually, you know, with, with urban flooding becoming increasingly likely as the climate changes, we can start to put in place and use what we have already to manage this far more effectively in terms of that's really fascinating. You know, anyone who's walked the Thames path will, I think, have to agree that so much of London's recent riverside development has been one big missed opportunity, the latest being in Nine Elms. So how are you going to ensure that this is different? What expertise are you bringing to the table to address this challenge? So Prior and Partners have come to the table with a really extraordinary array of talents a number of SMEs. In landscape terms, we've got West Aid, obviously, who have a long, long history of delivering some really extraordinary urban landscapes. London Wildlife Trust is also part of the team as well. And actually, it's been really fascinating to see that all of them 
despite the fact we obviously have to deliver quite significant and in some locations quite high density development, all of the teams, not surprisingly, saw landscape as the the fundamental driver of this project. You know, the time is now for Thamesmead, really. It's got everything there to create a neighbourhood that's going to be a really extraordinary place to live, which is fundamentally regenerative, you know, and using nature to regenerate not just itself, but also, I think, the the sort of living neighbourhood, if you like. So the theme that's come through from the competition is very much focused on how do you create a, a landscape setting for urban life that really does get the best out of everything and create somewhere which actually is going to be sustainable and productive in every sense of the word. And I think obviously the pandemic has really highlighted so many of these issues. I mean, it's not as if we didn't know when Phil and I were working all those years ago on the Olympic Park. It's not as if we didn't know that setting your life in and amongst nature was obviously going to be something worth doing. But I think more than ever, we we really do know that. And Thamesmead feels like it is the project of the moment. It's going to be addressing so many of the issues that we now know to be fundamental in terms of whether or not people have found the pandemic bearable or have found it virtually unendurable. And Westgate, I think they bring to the table something which is around landscape as central to a place. You know, I think this is where design, you know, really creative design thinking is so important. It lifts the thinking beyond the obvious and into something which is the unexpected. And in many respects, I think that's what the, the Thamesmead master plan did all those years ago in the, in the um, 60s and 70s. It created somewhere which had something, an element of the extraordinary in it. And it was, it was you know, we look back on it and, and realise that there were failures in it, but there was the grain of something potentially incredibly successful had they known then that they needed more people they would have done it and it would we would now be celebrating it I'm sure Mm. well I'm very interested in what Phil had to say about the way water is handled on the site is already structured you have these lakes you have these canals and the framework is already there and uh, exactly I think that's the interesting thing from our perspective of having having now we're about three quarters of the way through the delivery of the master plan at Elephant Park and obviously one of the in instrumental decisions early on in that project was to retain all the mature trees or as many of the mature trees as we could and that has actually created something really quite exceptional to have that quality of natural environment in the midst of a new development I think really is it's remarkable and and the opportunity at Thamesmead is really to build on all of that the kind of investment not just that took place all those years ago but actually obviously the subsequent maturing of that landscape and the embedding of the qualities of it within the setting. One of your colleagues in the comms department sent me a, I think, a three-minute video, which is a flyover of the site, and it really is extraordinary. I'm going to put it in the show notes because you you see, you know, 30,000 trees and five lakes and all this river frontage. It, It really is a unique opportunity. So in terms of flood control I mean, maybe it's too early to have any thoughts about this, but would there be an approach to floodable landscapes versus walls that keep the river out? I think there are sort of two parts to this. Thamesmead is largely a very low-lying piece of land, so it is protected very effectively from the Thames by the existing flood wall. And of course, one of the things which we are doing and will do increasingly, I suspect, in the future is work with the Environment Agency on their Thames 2100 project, which is to look at the whole flood wall, the Thames barrier and all of the sort of 
implications of climate change which come out from that. And I think a lot of the sort of thinking around new landscapes should be and is about providing infrastructure in simple terms, whether that be dealing with urban heat island effect or rainfall, water, or indeed sort of providing much healthier opportunities. So I think there'll be a lot of thinking around that. Of course, the great opportunity with the waterfront site is that it fronts onto the waterfront, onto the Thames. And I think there will be some interesting ideas that come out through the design process as to how that relationship is reconfigured or thought about at the moment. In most of Thamesmead currently, you don't know the Thames is there because you've got to get up onto the river wall or to a higher point to find it, which is a great shame. Um, But I think there's a real opportunity to think about that relationship with the waterfront project as well. I think that's the thing that's really fascinating about Thamesmead because you can be standing on the waterfront and you can your perception of the place can be visceral almost. You know, the wind, the scale of the river, the aeroplanes flying over, often kind of wobbling around trying to get into City Airport. And yet two feet away almost, you know, you step down behind the edge of the river and you're into a very, very different setting. So I think the interesting thing for me to that I would really I'm looking forward to exploring with the design team is the way in which you can create a wide, wide variety of different types of, of setting for leisure activities within the landscape, whether that's out on the sort of the big expanse or whether that's in much more intimate spaces and, you know, whether there's water that's deep enough to swim in or whether there's water that's shallow enough for children to happily and safely paddle in. The aspiration's got to be, if you were born in Thamesmead and you grow up there, kind of every step of the journey in your life, you will be, you'll be exploring the landscape and learning new things, you know. So a child dipping its toes into the water by the time they're in there, you know, when they're when they're old people, they'll be swimming there every day in the sort of the chilly lakes and you know enjoying that and thriving as a result of that, you know. And I, it's we should create a, a landscape setting where literally people can grow and learn. It, it is it is unique. So, one last question for you both. So, if we talk about the level of ambition in the 1960s, uh, what was delivered in the 60s and 70s at Thamesmead as a kind of suburban Barbican, how would you describe the 21st century equivalent of that? For me, I think it's fascinating because, because we've got many archive pictures of people moving into Thamesmead in, in those early years. And in fact, still quite a few people live in South Thamesmead in those original buildings, uh, which they, I would have to say, are immensely proud of. And the people of Thamesmead are incredibly proud of their place and protective of it. I think in the 21st century, some things have changed and some hasn't. So, you know, I've mentioned the ambition around water and flood management, water management, quite remarkable. And if anything, way ahead of its time. Some things like, for example, the road network in Thamesmead, the the, the place was really designed around the motor vehicle and the car in many respects. And I think in some instances that has now become slightly problematic in, in that it's divisive. And as we move into an era when we encouraging people to walk and cycle. There are certainly parts of Thamesmead where better solutions should be thought about um, going forward. So taking the landscape of Thamesmead and its original ambition and the best bits of it and, and using that as the starting point to what, how you would create a new place in the 21st century is, 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 is fairly fundamental. And also things about how people are going to live in the future given changing work patterns, will have a big influence upon how places are designed. Yeah, 
each generation has its own challenge, but it feels like the challenges we're facing are quite unbelievable. And by the time Thames Mead is completed, we will be living at absolute zero, obviously, in the production of the the environment has to has to achieve that. So our ambitions ought to be very clear at this stage that that's where we're going and we need to deliver that. I think the other lesson from the past as well has got to be that it's all very well being visionary and ambitious, but you can't achieve lasting results that people will will always cherish unless you you forget about that kind of top down and you start thinking bottom up. You know, a lot of the weaknesses we've seen in the past is kind of, you know, a bunch of technocrats, often often white middle-aged men, turn up and tell everyone this is the way you should live. Just <laughs> <laughs> pointing at yourself. No, no. You know, you're much, you're... <laughs> no, I, you're, you're absolutely right, Selena. And, I, and I, think, I think, you know, one of the things which we're really focused on in Peabody at the moment is this long-term stewardship approach to this place for example and how can that be something which is not just a a, a top-down approach but engages and involves the people who live and work and visit here in in a very proactive way yeah absolutely and I think you know that was obviously one of the huge attractions of working with an organization like Peabody because you know the that starting point the values speaking to people learning from them and working with them rather than doing everything on their behalf and pre-deciding what that good good might look like without that conversation. I think that's really important that we start with a conversation. Thank you very much. This is a project with a long-term vision, and it is true that starting now we're looking at 2050 when the world will hopefully be a different place and the approach to the built environment will have moved on. So. It's wonderful to see this long-term thinking. Our second guest today is Sarah Jones-Morris of Bristol-based Landsmith Associates. Sarah, welcome to Climate Champions. Alongside Newcastle Architects Mawson Kerr, You are the landscape architect on the team led by Igloo Regeneration, which is one of the winning teams in the government's recent Home of 2030 competition. Led by the RIBA and the BRE on behalf of three government departments, the brief was for innovative home designs that are green, age-friendly, and healthy. The winning projects are intended to be built on-site in Sunderland as part of the Future Living Expo in 2023. In your scheme, landscape and a web of green infrastructure are central. Can you describe the project for us? Yeah, Home of 2030 was a really exciting competition we were involved in and invited in by Igloo. At first, our role was more advisory in terms of building with nature because I'm a building with nature assessor. And under that remit, you would focus on various topics within Building with Nature, which is wildlife, well-being, and water. And we were just like, uh, well, that's one way of looking at it. But actually, when you start looking at the outdoor environment that is associated to this competition, how that sort of knits together the various areas and also the landscape becomes the glue that sort of binds these together. So we started to look at not just 
how people move, but how nature moves and seeing them as similarities because when it comes to people and nature, particularly with, with well-being and health, of which this pandemic has highlighted, they're very closely related. We started looking at that hinterland between what happens in the front gardens, what happens within communal gardens, because that's people's first step from their home, their workplace, into the outdoor environment, into nature. That's their first connection, is sort of private, sort of public. And then you've got the back gardens, which traditionally is private. And so we started questioning about what do we have as shared spaces? What do we have as shared facilities? What takes up space? And this idea of ownership of space, control of that space, but also about inviting nature to be part of that space. And also to realise that sometimes humans shouldn't be part of that space because with nature to really thrive, (laughs) there are some areas where humans really shouldn't be there in terms of interactions, but there's also crossovers and diversities of those landscapes for different purposes and and from an environmental perspective too. Because there's an idea that private gardens are essential because housing equals small children, which equals gardens for play. But little private gardens aren't really great to, to play in. And a lot of people aren't that fussed about gardening and just want to put down fake grass or, or decking. So having a communal garden, it's quite interesting in, in, in terms of how you could play in that as a child or, or how people in general could, could get to know their neighbours and, and live in a more communal way. Do you think people are ready for this kind of shift away from this like little kind of fenced off little bit of garden? I think the thing is, is communal gardens are not new. Actually, if you look at a lot of uh, particularly Georgian housing, you'll see communal gardens are quite common. The ideas we have in communal garden, funnily enough, was that there were some small private spaces which directly attached to the house, but they opened up also to communal gardens to give that variation because some people want that sort of privacy aspect, but also it's to do with possibility and opportunity. So with communal gardens, yes, you don't have that fenced enclosure, but you see so many housing developments and you look out and all you see is fencing. It sort of dominates the whole visual experience. (laughs) But also it's not great from a nature perspective because things like, for example, hedgehogs or different types of wildlife to, to be able to pass through, to permeate through, having all these barriers there is not going to aid that. But there's another aspect to communal gardens, which is the social interaction side. And there's variance, and that's again why we have a diversity of landscape. It's not all communal. There's some private, there's some communal. You need to have that variation because that appeals to different people at different times, different seasons, different ages, demographics, etc. But also the communal gardens offer a real opportunity of people to feel that they own something and be part of something but it isn't too overwhelming in terms of management and time. And there's a few developments I've seen recently with more modern ones where they have had communal gardens. And again, they do have that small courtyard space outside, but then it opens up to a larger communal space. I go to Amsterdam quite a lot, a really good friend of mine, she wants a landscape practice in Amsterdam. And we always have these like walks around. 
And there's one development which is really interesting where they do have the very, very small sort of doorstep front garden and then it opens out to allotments. But in the Netherlands, all spaces and uh, gardens, etc., can't have boundaries above one metre high onto that public space. And that's really important in terms of people's interaction and feeling safe. If you have 1.8 metre boundaries everywhere, people are not going to feel safe because there's no human interaction because there's this big fence or wall in the place. And particularly for women and children, that's that's really important. So a lot of the communal gardens really comes down to enclosure and boundaries. <laughs> it's good to challenge that. And challenge the sort of secure by design approach of wanting really high boundaries everywhere with the idea that that'll make people be safe. But then there's no passive surveillance. There's no, you can't see what's going on and it really makes you unsafe. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, we do love our boundaries in the UK. And actually, there's a big aspect widening out a bit more is a big aspect about land ownership and control. So, for example, beyond the home of 2030, if you start looking at some of our more rural towns, etc., and and areas in the suburbs, there's this idea that you're like in the countryside and can just walk out. But the reality is for a lot of these places is the access to those green spaces is more limited than in cities. I was working on a project, Top Desk Green Infrastructure, and we were really shocked to find there was very limited public access from the town itself. There's these perceptions of access and and being able to go out to these green spaces and wildlife but it's not always a reality down to a lot to do with land ownership control and boundaries i wanted to ask you about a different aspect of this project because much of the competition design was undertaken during lockdown and it appears to have been a particularly successful collaboration i heard you say don't feel constrained by your discipline and, you know, open up the discussion. What made this work well and how did it play out? If we're going to start thinking about from a climate change perspective, from a biodiversity emergency perspective, we need to stop thinking that that is it and this is our defined area and that's it. We need to broaden that out to see how things can start working together To do that, you need to step into and understand the language of different disciplines because otherwise you alienate and also you you have to have a clearer understanding from their perspective about what they need and how they could incorporate and be part of something. With the Home of 2030, we just went, let's just all have ideas about this. Let's just open this up. Let's just broaden this because... We all live in homes. We all go to streets and parks. We all experience things that are part of our disciplines. So why not try and see how they can start working together more effectively? How did you deal with water on the site? We had really high aspirations, and I know it's quite tricky to technically achieve. Can we not have it as a closed site, i.e. the water that is there, that is dealt with in site, and that includes black water, grey water, etc. I mean, it, we're like, oh, wouldn't that be fantastic, etc. But I know technically that's really difficult. But that's where we started. Start high. <laughs> so we wanted, and this is again back to this whole like, designing and thinking beyond your little bubble 
how is the water from the building going to be part of the whole water management and catchment in the area? Look at the site as it was. The buildings are like mini mountains. And you see the dips and hollows as little lakes and ponds. You, If you revision it as like a sort of a natural catchment area, then you can start thinking about how that could work. So, for example, how the water that's collected from the building and the facade of the building can network in and web into the landscape and how that can be stored and reused, but also from a multifunctional perspective, not just uh, we're just going to deal with the water, but like how it can be incorporated within play, how it can be incorporated in some areas for nature and wetland areas, etc., but you would have seasonal variations and that's quite important in terms of seeing seasonal variations, not just from planting, but from a water perspective too. Another thing you've talked about is diverse landscapes with mutual benefits. Can you explain exactly what that means? Oh, it's a little bugbear of mine. <laughs> I've been in various steering groups and discussion groups and there's so much focus on carbon 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 and it has been for so long I mean I've been working on projects that had uh, eco-home assessments co-sustainable home assessments over the years then Briam etc and the focus was so much on carbon it was on almost the detriment sometimes of anything else I think what we need to start thinking about is, hey, hang on a minute, there's this thing called uh, biodiversity and nature. And, you know, if we're not, if we don't have that, the whole world collapses, the economy collapses, it's all a bit of a disaster. So it's all very well banging on about carbon if you just ignore that big glaring massive thing called biodiversity and ecosystems then you kind of failed. So when I talk about mutual benefit, I mean that there are I'll give you a good example, actually. So th- there's a lot of focus on tree planting and the importance of trees, etc. And I, I agree. But there's other diversities of different types of landscapes which are of equal importance. Um, like, for example, peat bogs, huge carbon sink, but also massive biodiversity benefit. But I think the the mutual benefit side is to do with, for example, if you have an arch area planting, if you do multiple canopy layers of different types of species and varieties, you actually increase the carbon absorption and you have biodiversity benefit. So at the moment, you see quite a lot of tree planting specifically just for carbon offsetting and it can be almost plantation style, which is really poor for biodiversity. So why not start thinking mutual benefit and then you kind of got a win-win what's your view of the street of the future will we really have streets for people rather than streets for cars oh i live in hope (laughs) (laughs) i think there is a big challenge because we're talking about very large aspects when you're talking about street design, it's not just the street. You're talking about people's lifestyle. You're talking about how they work, how they live, everything. And that cannot be underestimated. I mean, I've done public realm work for over 20 years, and it is one of the most technically and political tricky areas of work, I would say. But there is going to be a tipping point where more and more people want to live in cities how are they going to move around? If we increase increasing density of housing, etc., how's that volume of people? How are they going to move? We do not have space, literally by quantum, 
for all the individual cars. And that's where there has to be serious discussions about shared mobility, shared facilities. That is the future. And shared waste, because waste has also an impact about how our streets are used and how our front gardens are used, etc. I don't think we'll ever be totally car free. And I think there's a lot of more rural locations where it would be very, very difficult to see a car-free future for those sort of locations. One scheme I worked on recently, there was this very big argument between uh, councillors about this specific element. But the reality was, is if you have very low density housing, you're going to have to really rethink about how mobility and transport is going to work in those areas in the future. Uh, You've mentioned that you're a building with nature assessor, which is a green infrastructure benchmarking and accreditation scheme. There's quite a lot of kind of frameworks and schemes to do with sustainability. What's this one about? What does it add? I've done so many different types of assessments in my life. I mean, I was really like, oh, it's another one. But what I like about this one is that it's qualitative and not quantitative. I was getting really frustrated with a very quantitative approach that assessments have and it missed out a whole vast array of missing components and information that I was just like, but hang on a minute, particularly around health and how you integrate that into design. But the other thing I liked about it is that it's actually about when it's built that it gets really the award and it's peer reviewed. So yeah, there's a robustness to it, but also you're not going to get it until it's constructed. So on the soft landscaping side, we've recently spoken to Guy Shrubsole of Rewilding Britain, who spoke to us at length about the need to change agricultural practices and rewild our national parks. So yeah, what's your take on on rewilding and and how the the soft landscaping relates to biodiversity and, and how that's changing? There is nothing wild in the UK and there hasn't been for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Everything's either been managed or it's been, you know, controlled in some way or form or interfered with by man throughout the whole of the UK. There's nothing wild here. So I have a slight issue with the term rewild because I think it's great in terms of people can grasp it as an idea. So you have, don't have to take it too literally but I would say it's nature-led because it's inferring that man can make things wild when actually it's the opposite. Actually, the issues are, is man. (laughs) We can't make things wild. If we leave things alone and we do not interfere, eventually over maybe quite some time, and I mean like potentially a millennia in some places, potentially they'll become wild. But it's inferring that we as humans are in control of that and we are not so i prefer the term nature led and the whole thing about natives non-natives i mean to be honest what do you call native a lot of these plants that we perceive as native were introduced x number of years ago where do you want to draw the line and um, the other thing is that we've got it underestimates a massive issue at the moment we have with biosecurity and pests and diseases You just have to walk in a woodland and you see ash dieback. In Bristol, for example, there's a huge amount of woodland where you have hundreds, if not thousands of trees that are dead. There's so many pests and diseases running rife in some areas. I mean, it's varying in some areas they have been able to control it. 
But there is a concern, and this links back to climate change, of increased temperature rises that will affect increasing amount of pests and diseases, particularly on native plant species. So it's really important to diversify what, uh, the, the species that we are using. You don't want to create monocultural landscapes. You really want to diversify those landscapes for the future. And I know there's a lot of work that's been done, uh, Kew Garden and a lot of other, and the Forestry Commission have done about future tree species because there's some serious concerns about what will happen. Even the London Plain, I mean, that's classic there's known uh, diseases now with London Plain. Can you imagine the impact that would have in certain areas of London where you have streets and streets for the London's Plain? So this is why it's really critical in terms of stepping away from this whole native, non-native argument. You've really got to start p- pushing about, well, what do you mean by that? I mean, I'll give you another case. Is um, There's a fantastic research by um, the Urban Pollinators Project with University of Bristol, and I think it was Reading and one other university. And they found there was a higher amount of pollinators within allotments and gardens than there are in nature reserves within the countryside. So it really does challenge your thinking and challenge your perceptions by what do we mean by wild. Is there anything that we've missed out in terms of your current work or project pipeline that you'd like to add? There's a lot of work I'm doing about retrofit of streets. And I think that that's quite a big area for landscape architecture because you work with high engineers particularly. But I find that that's quite an interesting, for me, quite an interesting area because people are starting to think, well, if, in 2025 there are a very low amount of cars in the city what our streets look like and you go to any community engagement any survey i can guarantee you street planting (laughs) planters um wanting more outside seating benches all of those things come up repeatedly it's a high priority and as a profession landscape architects are key uh, in terms of bringing those various threads together of people and nature because it's not just to do with that street that becomes a network that can contribute to a much much bigger network beyond the edges of cities thank you very very much thank you for inviting me join climate champions Please rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us so we can build an audience. You can find the show notes for this and previous episodes at architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.